This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. The world's population has just passed the 8 billion mark, and an increasing proportion of those people are old, including increasingly the so-called old-old in their 90s and beyond. Indeed, never before have so many older people inhabited the planet. Are we prepared for them? Given the, inevitably, the inevitable medical and health challenges that accompany old age, are we ready to take care of all those people? We also need to know how people experience old age. Are you really just as old as you feel? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And I want to note that today's podcast is our 100th since we began the series in April of 2020. We're fortunate to have with us today David Troyansky, who is Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center of the City University. He's author of Old Age in the Old Regime, Image and Experience in 18th Century France from 1989, and uh, of the book Aging in World History from 2016, as well as numerous articles on the history of old age and on aspects of French cultural history. He's currently co-editing with Tim Parkin of the University of Melbourne, a six-volume Cultural History of Old Age, that's the title, uh, for Bloomsbury Press. Thanks so much for being with us today, David Troyansky. Thank you, John. Glad to be with you. Great to have you and to talk about this really important subject, I think. So you've spent a lot of your scholarly, scholarly career really studying the history of old age throughout time and indeed around the world. So what's new about old age? Well, let me address that in a couple of ways. Um, first, and in line with things that you said right at the start, 
in terms of the aging of populations. Uh, and then in terms of how historians and other scholars um, are examining old age in a new way. So as far as the demography is concerned, we live in what British historian Peter Laslett referred to as age-transformed populations. In other words, never in the past was there such a high percentage of older people in the population, and never in the past did so many people live into advanced age. Now, this is sometimes presented as a frightful thing, leading to a budgetary crisis and a crisis of dependency. But it's also presented as a great triumph of life over death. When Pat Thane, another scholar uh, in the UK who's written a great deal about the history of old age, speaks to a non-expert audience, she essentially says that older people have never had it so good, uh, that we're living in the best time to be old. Uh, But it doesn't mean the past was just a nightmare. Um, And that brings me to the second part of um, my answer. Uh, How have historians and other scholars approached the subject? Um, Well, we're not so completely different from everyone else uh, trying to navigate between decline narratives of aging and much more positive understandings uh, of aging and the aged. Were older people better positioned and better respected in the past? Has their status declined? Or can we talk about societies that are better equipped to deal with the needs of older people? Gerontologists often speak of successful aging or positive aging. uh, And of course, that may set some people up for failure, uh, maybe most of us eventually. Um, But the point is that we're much more conscious of the age structure of the population and have choices to make. Um, I've noticed that Americans are now speaking as much about the power of the aged, uh, consider the U.S. Senate, uh, as about the fragility of the aged. Um, That's uh, another matter. Um, When when I was asked to write Aging in World History, um, I thought of myself as a European historian who worked primarily on France. So I had to think about what it meant to do world history. And I was confronted by the unevenness of the scholarly literature. Um, There was already a pretty significant historical literature on old age in France, in Great Britain, in the US, and a few other countries. But I also benefited from the literature that was coming out on the rest of the world, at least in languages I could read. Um, It was great fun to be reading uh, on Africa and Latin America and Asia. Um, Sometimes I was relying on sociologists and anthropologists more than historians. But in adapting their work to history, I was doing something that historians uh, had been doing for a long time, we take from other disciplines. And one of the ideas I played with was whether societies around the world were all converging around a common set of understandings about the aging of their populations, as well as their social policies and cultural representations. Is a world history of aging one story or is it many stories? And I guess people can read the book to find out or at least get some clue. 
Right. Well, we all look forward to the book. Um, but there's one thing I wanted to sort of clarify uh, before I move on to some other questions. And, and that is, I mean, we haven't really used the term life expectancy, but part of this story is a story of growing life expectancy and indeed dramatically growing life expectancy over the last century and a half to two centuries. Um, but that doesn't mean that in the past, you know, nobody lived to be old or few people lived to be old. It really basically was a triumph of the defeat of, um, you know, infant death, right? The number of people who died before the age of five, basically. Uh, and after you got beyond five, you could live a long time, right? So I, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about, you know, clarifying that that's really what's going on. That I mean, it's also true that we have a lot of older people now, but, you know, a lot of the difference between now and say the mid 19th century really had to do with uh, getting a grip on uh, infant and youth diseases. Well, yeah, but um, what you're describing, of course, uh, leads to uh, in the other direction towards a more youthful population for a time. Um, but when uh, demographers talk about the aging of populations, they're really talking about two different sorts of things. Um, think in terms of um, an age pyramid. And one can talk about an aging from below uh, where the young people are and an aging from above. So in most cases, we're talking about an aging from below at first, but that's not so much about uh, the triumph of um, over infectious disease and uh, uh, much higher rates of survival of young people. It's about people having fewer children, right? So uh, basically when you're thinking about how a population is structured, it's the narrowing at the base. It's uh, basically limiting fertility, which is a part of the demographic transition, right? That um, results in the aging, uh, a different age composition, right? The aging of the population. Now, there's also the aging that occurs at the top of the pyramid, and that's where we're talking about uh, adults and older people um, who are living longer. Um, and so there are two different sorts of processes. One of the interesting things uh, uh, I've observed uh, uh, in the demographic literature is the way in which some demographers are talking about the demographic transition uh, in a way that includes aging. So it used to be that this transition was all about uh, reducing fertility and reducing mortality. Um, but aging uh, is actually included uh, when a lot of demographers and historical demographers uh, talk about these sorts of things. Um, Got it. Okay, so... Um, oh, one you other know, thing, if, if, uh, if I may, um, because you talked about... Um, uh, increasing life expectancy and the fact that there were already um, uh, people that we would consider old uh, in past time. Um, I like to think of this as a kind of democratization, that more and more people are able to live through that life course. It's not that um, people, uh, are, that many people at this point are living longer than anybody ever lived. 
it's just that so many more are able to do that. Uh, so right, right. Well, that's that's helpful. So now we've been sort of talking about demography, but one of the interesting things to me about your new project uh, is that you're sort of emphasizing not just the demographic expansion of old age, um, but the experience of old age. So you know, tell us like what are we missing about old age and how people experience it? Yeah, I I, I think this um, follows from what I was saying before. Uh, and it's something that some historians uh, missed. I mentioned Peter Laslett, and he tended to focus on what was happening in the 20th century or at the earliest, the late 19th century, uh, seeing that demographic shift as, as, as most important. But it's not the only story. Um, I mean, it's great that some historical demographers now include uh, aging in the demographic transition. These things are all connected, as I was saying. Um, but, uh, I think we need to recognize that, uh, we're dealing with an older story. Um, and there was something called old or people called old in the past. They were familiar with it. Um, there are lots of examples of numerical thresholds for the start, um, of the last stage of life. Uh, people have located them differently, but whether we're looking at um, ancient China or Mesopotamia or Egypt or wherever, um, there is an idea of the ages of life. It may be um, a little bit detached from most people's experience. It, it, it is largely detached from most people's experience, but they would have observed um, some people reaching old age. And so then we have to ask, well, uh, what did that mean? Uh, was it all that different because there were fewer people reaching it? Or, or is there something that we see in the past that looks kind of familiar? And I think this is where, um, you know, historians are always playing with this uh, idea of change and continuity and the degree to which we can um, almost see ourselves in the past or the degree to which the past is a foreign country. Um, so people understood old age uh, functionally, uh, if not numerically. Um, they saw it often in the context of power and authority. Um, they also understood old age in cultural terms as perhaps worthy of respect for its experience or uh, wisdom or as deserving of censure um, for one kind of misbehavior or another. Um, still, one of the problems I've confronted is that of going beyond the standard cultural representations to people's experience of growing old. And that is harder to get at than sort of the, um, the standard sort of stereotypes that exist in a, uh, a given society. And here, um, I think um, this is something that maybe social historians weren't uh, all that uh, equipped to do or interested in doing, uh, literary sources help. Um, characters age, uh, or writers' styles change over time, uh, or people's first-person writing uh, evolves. Um, and in the Bloomsbury Cultural History of Old Age, uh, in each of those volumes, we have people who are writing about first-person accounts. But again, there's a, there's a problem of trying to figure out um, 
how to take those accounts. To what extent are people just rewriting what everybody always wrote um, about the life course uh, or about growing old? Or what leaps out at us as uh, uh, as new? Um, and this is something that um, I'm playing with also in a book that'll be coming out next year um, that uh, is called Entitlement and Complaint, Ending Careers and Reviewing Lives in Post-Revolutionary France. Um, and while Oxford University Press has been threatened to change the title, I think that's what it will actually be. But it's based on a large sample of individuals, uh, in this case, of magistrates who demanded retirement pensions from the state. And I trace them over the course of half a century. Um, they provide proof of their service. There's a kind of uh, bureaucratic system developing, but they also tell life histories. And in cases where they're unsuccessful in their demands, they ask again under the next regime. And for that period of French history, there's another regime every generation. So they age and their presentation of self and their presentation of the past changes. So rather than focus on broad cultural representations, which is where uh, a lot of the literature has been, I'm interested here in getting at individuals' take on their own experiences. Um, there's something institutional about this study. It, it, it's sort of organized institutionally. Um, you have to be 60 years old. You have to have 30 years of experience in state service to have a guaranteed pension. But how do we get beyond the setting of rules to how people used institutions. So that's one of my um, questions in the forthcoming book. And it's a question that has interested other recent scholars writing about the views of residents of hospitals and old age homes. Um, so this kind of study is exciting, but it usually involves a very close reading of one kind of archival source. So then we have the problem of going from one population or institution to something bigger. And that's kind of where we are. Right. So uh, I guess I want to uh, ask a follow-up to that, um, that is, you know, self-interested in certain respects. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've thought more about being old and aging and all these kinds of things. Um, and so I, you know, I'm interested in this question that you sort of touched on at some point in your previous answer uh, about the way in which the old are perceived in different societies. I mean, I think we do have a kind of, you know, maybe idealized notion of certain societies in which the old were regarded with esteem and prestige and they were wise and thoughtful and you know, I have to confess in certain respects in my own thinking about the world, I feel like I've come to, a, you know, a greater, I would say, appreciation of, you know, the wisdom that older people have. I mean, just the fact that they've been through more and seen more suggests to me that, you know, in fact, they have a certain edge. It doesn't mean they have the right answer about everything, obviously, but that they do have a certain kind of edge in thinking about, you know, the problems that the world faces. I mean, is that image that we have of, you know, the, the elderly as wise, is that a, a romantic image or is that a reality? I mean, there are societies like China, which seem to me basically historically to have been gerontocracies. 
uh, and you know, very much so today, even uh, with the Communist Party in charge. So, you know, and that reflects to me a, a kind of belief that that you know, that age brings wisdom. But anyway, I'd be curious, you know, what you would say about all that. What I'd say is that the idea that you've just uh, stated is very widespread. Um, as I <laughs> branched out from uh, areas I know pretty well, uh, Western Europe, the United States, uh, to areas I know less well, um, I certainly was discovering uh, certain common features. Uh, you mentioned China. Actually, when Simone de Beauvoir wrote a, a really influential book on old age back in the early 70s, um, uh, she presented China as a kind of exception uh, because of a kind of Confucian tradition. Um, but if you look at um, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, if you look at um, uh, South Asia, uh, if you look at any number of other places, uh, you're going to find similar kinds of representations of the aged as wise. But at the same time, you'll often find people, if you look hard enough, uh, lamenting the fact that it's no longer true, right? So uh, I remember one of the things I began my, my first book with long, long ago was um, a, a quotation from someone in the early 19th century saying, oh, we used to revere old age. We used to uh, uh, honor uh, the wisdom of our elders. We don't anymore. And as you go back in time, you find other statements like that. So you'll find that in ancient Greece. You'll find that in ancient Rome. You'll find that in a number of other um, places. Um, and I, I have to admit that when I was a lot younger and I was writing on this subject, um, I thought of it as, you know, a discourse, uh, a, a, an idea. Uh, I didn't give as much thought as I have more recently and as you have uh, to the reality. Oh, yeah, um, we should take seriously this idea of wisdom. I mean, there uh, are gerontologists who, after, um, I think, a very long time uh, focusing on um, the fragility of old age, or accepting the fragility to a certain extent, and and just uh, but not seeing it as the most important story, um, they've actually thought about wisdom uh, in a serious way. Paul uh, uh, Baltes uh, uh, in, in Germany um, and other uh, scholars have have really emphasized this. Um, I think one of the things that would be great to get at would be how people come to this, these realizations over the course of a lifetime and what you describe for yourself. And I, I can describe something similar for myself. Um, I started out being rather skeptical about these ideas and thinking, well, this is just ideology. And sometimes it is. Look, um, uh, the, the, the people who are in the most secure position in old age uh, <laughs> have always been in a more secure position because they come from a kind of cultural elite, all right? Uh, and so a, a large landowner um, uh, or an aristocrat uh, in the 17th century 
uh, is in better shape to uh, uh, to weather the aging process uh, than someone who is more marginal and might be accused of witchcraft, right? So uh, rather than totalizing about an entire society and saying, this is the view of old age, um, uh, the closer we look, the more we have to distinguish among different segments of the um, of the population. But let me make, say one other thing about this. Um, when I have uh, when I was looking at the literature on East Asia, and I was also looking at the literature on um, the Chinese diaspora, um, there was a tendency for um, uh, people to write about uh, a, a kind of unchanging past in which elders were always respected, in which filial piety was always at the center of things. And my sort of critical historian's move was to ask, really, is that is that true? Is that what exists on the ground? Um, and I was hearing it also from my students when I've, when I've taught uh, about uh, old age among history students and other students at Brooklyn College. Um, uh, often I find that st- students who uh, are uh, come from uh, Chinese and Chinese-American families will talk about the tension they feel between that Confucian ideal and American reality. And uh, I just wonder uh, whether we're falling into a trap uh, just accepting um, uh, the, the, the sort of... Uh, a cultural ideal as a reality. It's hard to get at. Right. So um, whether people our age have wisdom, we'll, you know, we'll have to keep exploring, I'm sure. But uh, as for the money, uh, I think it's clearer that the older people have the money. So now that wasn't necessarily always the case. I mean, Social Security and Medicare you know, largely eliminated the problem of elder poverty in the United States. It was, in that sense, a revolution, really, for that population. Uh, So the ideas that the Republicans occasionally have of, you know, getting rid of these things are wildly unpopular um, and puzzling, therefore. Um, But in any case, you know... uh, there does seem to be a kind of generational tension between the young and the old around the money. Um, and I guess I wonder, you know, generally, given this, the growth, the expansion of this population, uh, are we ready for this economically? I mean, it's been a drag on the Chinese economy uh, because of the way things have played out and the decline of younger people to because of the one child and uh, those policies. Uh, it's reduced the number of younger people in the labor force to support all these older people. So uh, are we ready for this, uh, you know, old age uh, expansion, economically speaking? Let me address that in a couple of ways. I'll get to the Social Security um, issue in a uh, uh, in a minute, um, but first, if we look back to the pre welfare state period, uh, I think uh, the issues you raise about wealth, about power, and about generation um, they were real, um, and so one can speak of um, older people who, as long as they uh, have their health and have their strength. Um, if they have property, um, 
they are in a, a, a relatively good position and younger people uh, may have greater resentment than what you're describing for the present or the contemporary period. That is, there are tensions over, over property. Let me g- give you an example. Um, there are a bunch of societies where, uh, particularly rural societies, where we can talk about control of land and an older population holding on to it for fear of losing authority. And so one of the things I did long ago when I was working in 18th century France was um, uh, to look at village societies and the notarized agreements signed between uh, generations um, that the older generation will promise something or may actually hand over authority, but against the promise that they will be supported. It's a written document, right? It's notarized. It's something that can be taken to court if somebody breaks the agreement. So the idea that somehow uh, intergenerational conflict is something that waits for uh, the contemporary period, uh-uh, that doesn't, that doesn't quite work. Um, I could say more about this, but let me switch to the, the social security question. Um, and I think you're right that in the Chinese case, we're dealing also with uh, a, an artificial situation where the one child family sort of set up the, uh, <laughs> the, the problem. Uh, but it is a, a, a more general problem. Um, there is a relatively easy solution to part of the problem if we're looking at social security. You can tax incomes above the current cutoff. So uh, last I looked, the maximum taxable income is $147,000, and that's been going up year by year. Um, there's a lot more income to tax. Now, is that going to solve the problem on its own? Probably not. It's going to go some way towards solving it. Um, I think uh, the other issue um, is age at retirement. Um, and in the U.S., we've been upping the age threshold for full Social Security. Um, in France, the country I work on most, the retirement age is 62, but President Macron wants to raise it to 65 by the year 2031. And yesterday, uh, in anticipation of uh, battles ahead this winter, um, he said, well, maybe 64. Uh, but we have to tinker with that. So there's a lot that um, uh, can be done uh, to deal with that. And this was actually the hot topic in French politics before it got swept off the table by COVID. Um, There's another element to this kind of calculation about what has to be spent, uh, who's producing and who's consuming. Um, If we think about the way in which uh, shrinking of the base of the age pyramid is what leads, at least in part, to aging. Okay, you'll have fewer children to care for. uh, So that part of the dependent population shrinks while the older part grows. Um, I think there's sometimes a lot of um, 
uh, of fear ab about all of this. And when we look closely, there are ways of handling these things short of uh, uh, destroying the system or privatizing uh, uh, the system. Uh, so I think uh, there are um, issues that we have to address as a, a society, but um, at least so far, uh, the most serious needs, uh, the most serious health needs, are ones that come uh, very late in the story. That is, when we talk about a period of old age, uh, we're talking about um, uh, a growing period, but one in which things really go downhill, um, whether we're talking about physical health or uh, cognitive abilities and so on, at the end. Um, there's the open question of what's happening with um, various forms of dementia uh, and how long people are living with that. So, you know, uh, societies are, uh, are, are facing these kinds of things. But um, uh, I would advise people who panic <laughs> at the, the current uh, uh, budgetary issues or the projected ones to look a little bit more closely. And finally, on this question of intergenerational conflict, back in the um, 1980s and 90s, uh, there was a lot of talk in the world of, uh, of demography and particularly among people in political science and economics about the coming conflict between um, the generations. And I think uh, people looking back on that would say it didn't pan out. Now, maybe it'll be different now. Uh, that's quite possible. But the last time we went through this, and it was a particularly uh, 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 fraught debate in the United States, though it was occurring elsewhere as well, um, it, it just didn't happen uh, the way uh, people had feared. Um, and what will happen in the future? I don't know. I'm a historian. I deal with the past. Good move. <laughs> so perhaps one last question as we're sort of running out of time. And I mean, not to go prurient on you, but, you know, one of the things that comes up, shall we say, uh, when the question of old age and the aging population comes up is the question of sexuality. And I'm curious, you know, uh, it, on the one hand, it's thought, it seems like it's thought to be impossible. And on the other hand, it's sort of grotesque. Uh, so I wonder whether it's not getting a bit of a bad rap. Yeah. Um, so I think um, uh, it has gotten a bad rap and it continues often to get a bad rap. But I think to some extent it's changing. Um, maybe, um, the aging of the baby boom generation, uh, has something to do with that. Um, but the idea of the, uh, older, wealthier man taking younger women off the marriage market, uh, is, is old and it's visible in lots of literary sources. The images of the, the dirty old man or the oversexed woman, uh, particularly, uh, a widow was very common in the past. And it was a way of censuring certain behavior by uh, making uh, people ashamed. But it doesn't tell us very much about how people actually behaved or um, understood themselves. So how can we get at that? Um, we know that 
widowers have almost always remarried more quickly and commonly than widows. Uh, we know something about sexuality outside of marriage, that is historians of sexuality. Um, but as you say, um, sometimes uh, uh, we have to be um, uh, both clever and lucky in um, finding appropriate sources. Um, I think it's mostly in recent times that we see a new understanding of the sexuality of the aged, whether at home or in institutions where uh, it may uh, be seen to be a problem. Um, and I think for a topic like this one, we might have to rely more on literature and uh, the creative arts and on film uh, than other, other kinds of sources. I, uh, one of the features of that old Simone de Beauvoir book was that uh, she used some uh, journals by writers, particularly in the 19th century, uh, to get at these kinds of issues. So um, writers aren't necessarily um, uh, typical of the entire population, but sometimes we're dealing with um, those sources and we deal with the sources that we have. Um, but I think we also should pay attention, uh, and I think we see it all around us, to what physicians and psychologists and social workers um, have to say. Um, the sexuality of the aged may take us into the area of pharmaceuticals, of Viagra, of hormonal therapies. Um, but those who write about the sexuality of the aged also emphasize different kinds of intimacy. Um, and um, I think one of the reasons the sexuality of the aged gets this bad rap, as you call it, is that we lump old people together as if they're not individuals. And of course, um, uh, that they're closer than the rest of us uh, to death. Um, but that lumping together is dangerous and wrongheaded. And let, I want to uh, refer to something that um, the Irish geriatrician Desmond O'Neill uh, likes to say about this. He says that it's younger people who are all alike. Older people are all individuals, all originals. And it's the reverse of what we sometimes think. And so I would like to put that question about um, sexuality in the larger context of uh, the individual self and the history of intimacy. Again, not always the easiest things to get at, but um, uh, certainly worth trying to get at. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, Desmond O'Neill's observation is one uh, of the hardborn wisdom of old age, I suspect. Um, in any case, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank my colleague, David Troyansky, for sharing his thought, his insights on aging and world history and on old age today. International Horizons is part of the New Books Network of Academic Podcasts. Please subscribe to our RSS feed or find and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.